Welcome to part two of this Rock Geeks podcast. Before you listen any further, and if you haven't already, we can highly recommend that you go back and listen to part one. Thanks very much. This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks Who played on that? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the Rock Geeks Yeah, we're the Rock Geeks So... Following the recording of Master of Puppets, the master tapes were sent to Michael Wagner at Amigo Studios in Los Angeles uh, to be mixed. Wagner is a German former music producer, mixer and engineer from Hamburg, best known for his work uh, with many top glam metal and oh, heavy metal bands. he's done some bands. belters here. He has Absolute belters. In the late 80s. Uh, his credits include um, Accept... Um, I don't think I know any of their songs. I remember all of these, what you're going to say now, yeah. from Kerrang! magazine in the late 80s. Yeah. And like Monsters of Rock bills. I think a lot of them appeared on those, didn't they? Yeah. I'm sure I accept will like lower down the bill yeah. on some of them. Yeah. As a side note, Wagner was the original guitarist for Accept. Was he now? He was, yeah. Uh, Alice Cooper, Dokken. Extreme, for which he produced Porno Graffiti, which was an album that we sort of listened to. Is that the first one? Uh, or the I think second so. One? It's the first one, I think. Right, okay. Um, Halloween. Oh, I love Halloween. I do as well. Great <laughs> Megadeth, uh, he mixed So Far, So Good, So What? Right. Motley Crue, uh, he uh, mixed Too Fast for Love. Ozzy Osbourne, No More Tears, which he mixed. And then... The follows like the worst lineup for a concert ever. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if well, that. <laughs> I mean, you know. First up, Poison. Yeah. Followed by Skid Row. Yeah. Followed by Striper. Yeah. Followed by Testament, who I think I'd be all right with. Yeah. And then Warrant, just to yeah. finish you off at the end. So Poison, Skid Row, Striper, and Warrant are probably like to glam rock what Megadeth, Metallica, Slayer and Anthrax are to yeah. <laughs> like thrash metal yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that's a good thing it's not um, so you know it's interesting that Wagner um, is mixing Matra Puppets yeah it seems like an odd choice it seems it? a little bit out of his wheelhouse although he did do Megadeth so you know but it's all distorted guitars, bass and drums isn't it yeah if you look at it like that yeah yeah Again, I'm quoting this Sarah Jones article from mixonline.com. We're going to have to give uh, us some kind of money, which, money if we keep I know. going. I know, but it is a really good, thorough article and contains lots of uh, really interesting information and, uh, and quotes. So, Wagner had produced records for Dokken, X, Striper, Poison and Accept that year. Difficult year for him. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, he was steeped in metal, yet heard a new sound in Metallica, and I can imagine that when he got these tapes... Like, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that they didn't sound anything like, uh, you know, any of those bands... No makeup. ...that we just mentioned. No hairspray. Yeah. So, Wagner says, uh, I've worked with a lot of metal bands before, but Metallica was more of a heavy, heavy, heavy metal band says Wagner. Um, they had their own ideas about where they wanted to go, and it was, at the time, slightly different from what I would normally do, like the reverby drum sounds and stuff. They didn't want all that. They wanted it fairly dry, in your face, and everything loud. So Wagner received reels of analogue tape, which he transferred to digital tape, interestingly. So this must have been, like, really, really, early really days. early days of yeah. digital um, and it must have cost Amigo Studios an absolute arm and a leg mm. um, to, to get these digital tape machines. Um, so he says, uh, we mixed from the digital tape, um, but we had to line up a bunch of tapes with each other 
uh, and it was a fairly extensive recording for the time. So two 24-track machines synced together. So yes, definitely an extensive recording. Um, but you know, massive amounts of equipment, and we got a handle of it on it. Sorry. Um, so I mixed the album in two weeks, which. I don't know if that's good. I don't know if that's bad. I don't know how long it would take to mix an album. It's well, it's roughly a song every couple of days, isn't it? There's eight eight songs. But within those eight songs, there is so much. There's there's quite bits, loud bits. It's not yeah. just like you're mixing a song which has got the same dynamic all the yeah. way through it. Well, apart it? from the thing that should not be. Yeah. So I think what sped it up was much of the band signature sound was already printed to tape. Yeah. So that allowed him to focus on creative EQ. Uh, and delay effects, uh, reaching mostly for AMS and lexicon delays, um, and Yuri 530 and Auburn 622B EQs. My favourite. Yeah, I mean, God, the Auburn 622B, I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't live without mine. I know. The A model, nah. not, not a big fan. Even no. the C model, <laughs> you know, wasn't... I, I don't, you they were know. trying to fix something that didn't need to be fixed, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Um, so, um, although Wagner occasionally applied the an, an LA4A to tame dynamics, he generally approached compression with a light hand, probably because it was already on the tape. Yep. Um, you know, the sounds were already com, uh, compressed. Um which is interesting because he says here, I don't subscribe to the idea of putting compression on guitars because for me, the guitar amp is the best compressor you can get. He says vocals a little bit more because they're much more dynamic and they have to sit in that certainly louder space. More than three decades later, Master of Puppets has lost none of its sheer power. They certainly did create a new genre, says Wagner, um, and they're still in that genre and that's why it still sounds modern. I guess he's got a point there. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the latest single sounds extremely vintage Metallica. It does, yeah. Uh, but still sounds really fresh, doesn't it? I think it's because, like we've just said, it sounds quite dry, a lot of it. And I think when you make things sound dry, you're not pinning it to a certain point in time, are you? No. No, I, I think if they'd have put a massive reverb on the snare drum, yeah. everyone would have gone 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, and... There are various other um, things that they could have done that would have dated the recording, you know, quite quite significantly. Hmm. Um, but good on them. They resisted it all and, and put out an album that they wanted to put out. Yep. Should we have a cup of tea? Yes. <laughs> That was very forthright, right? I know. Should we talk about gear? Yes. Okay, so um, in a, um, a lesson in not trusting everything you read on the internet, with reference to the guitar that James Hetfield used to record right. uh, Master of Puppets with, um, on the internet, pretty much everywhere that you look will tell you that he used a 1985 Jackson King V Custom, uh, which he had called or nicknamed Kill Bon Jovi. <laughs> Right. Um, which I don't think is very charitable. No, I don't either. You know, I mean, he seems like a nice guy. So what changed your mind? Why do, why do, why do you dispute this then? Well, because in the... Because um, it's not true. Yeah, well, basically, because <laughs> it's not true. In, in, the, um, in the, the, the Matt Taylor Back to the Front book, um, Hetfield is um, quoted as saying, um, I stuck pretty much to the Gibson Explorer on the album. There was a Jackson King V around too, but it never sounded as tight as I wanted it to. It wasn't as comfortable as the Explorer, which was an easy guitar to play sitting down. So there you go, internet. You are absolutely 100% wrong. If you've ever tried to play a Flying V sat down, it's it's yeah, it kind it's, of, it's tricky. Yeah, Unless it, you go for the one part of the V under your leg, one going yeah. over the leg. But then yeah. you end up with a very strange posture yeah. where you're almost like a, a classical guitarist, don't you? Yeah. Or you could do what Dave Davis used to do and, yeah. and stick your arm through the V. That looks really weird, doesn't it? Prop, prop the guitar up that way. Um, but basically, all, all those people that said, oh, it's definitely Kill Bon Jovi on every track, um, you know, you're wrong. Uh, it was his uh, Explorer. 
So there you go. Very good. Um, and that, that seems to be the one guitar that he used throughout. Okay, so Kirk Hammett's guitars. The information that you'll find online about Kirk Hammett's guitars is largely correct. Right, okay. Um, so he, uh, he had an early 80s Jackson Randy Rhodes, uh, which was possibly an 83 model, um, as Hammett acquired it direct from Jackson following the recording of Kill 'em All. Um, very pointy, aren't they? Very, very pointy. Um, possibly the pointiest of all the Vs. Pointy on the headstock, pointy in the body. Yeah, yeah. You could probably go spearfishing with it. Yep. If you felt so inclined. Um, it says here, Hammett used the guitar almost exclusively to record Master Puppets and still uses it live to this very day uh, on drop D tunes, such as Sad But True. Okay. So there you go. It was a through body neck, uh, which means that the neck and the body were all part of the same piece of wood. Um, it uh, housed micro AMG 81 humbuckers, a tunematic bridge, Two volume controls, one tonality control, and goto tuners. Um, he also used a stock 1970s Gibson Flying V, um, which according to Hammett is possibly a 78 or a 79. Which means that, I don't mean specifically this guitar, but James Hetfield probably used these guitars as well, didn't he, for the rhythm yes. tracks? So yeah. like, although we just said he used the Explorer pretty much exclusively... We've contradicted ourselves there because it says yes. that he used to record with his guitar and then use Kirk Hammett's guitars as well to record. Yes, we have just been blatantly lying to anybody listening. Well, somebody's lying somewhere. And we do apologise um, for our blatant lies and we only hope that, um, that you in can full, forgive us. fullness of time you can <laughs> forgive us. Um, so another iconic guitar heavily associated with the heavy metal genre, the Flying V, first appeared in 1958. Uh, but perhaps unsurprisingly, given its wildly futuristic look for the time, uh, didn't prove too popular with the guitar buying public, uh, with just 81 guitars shipped in the first year of production. I'm not keen on a flying V, I'll be honest. I don't mind them. I mean, I'd look, I'd look ridiculous look playing a, one. You'd look a right tit. But I don't mind, don't mind them. Hmm. Thanks. Or <laughs> um, flying V basses as well. Oh, oh my word. Yeah, I, I there's something very wrong with those. I draw the line at flying yeah. V bass. I imagine somebody in Striper will have had a flying V bass or Dockin. Probably, yeah. Terrible. Probably a really pointy one as well. Um, uh, so it wasn't until the mid-60s when folks like Dave Davis of the Kinks and Jimi Hendrix were seen playing the flying V that it began to gain some popularity. Who designed the flying V? <laughs> Well, I was just I was just deliberating whether or not to. No, get, do it. I like this. it. Um, so uh, the Flying V was designed uh, by the very forward-thinking Seth Lover. <sighs> Great name, Mister Lover. Mister Lover, man. Oh yeah. Um, inventor and designer of the humbucking pickup, uh, who also designed the Explorer, uh, another favourite of the heavy metal guitarist, uh, including. Uh, James Hetfield, as oh, discussed. I didn't realise he designed the bo- both of them. Uh, yes, he did, yeah. yeah. So we've got him to thank. Um, the Flying V gained further popularity throughout the 1970s with guitarists such as Mark Bolan, uh, Andy Powell of Wishbone Ash, Billy F. Gibbons of ZZ Top, K.K. Downing of Judas Priest, Eddie Van Halen and Rick Nielsen of Cheap Trick, all wielding them at, at some point. However... It is said that Hammett was inspired by Michael Schenker of Scorpions and UFO right. uh, when he bought his Flying V. So Hammett's Flying V was used to record parts from the first four Metallica albums, uh, but it hasn't seen much accent since the Black Album and Hammett's endorsement of ESP guitars. Right. So there you go. Um, so yeah, all those, all those guitars. There is a picture of Kirk Hammett in the uh, Back to the Front book. There's the Fernandez Edna guitar as well, isn't there? there which I think he used yes. a bit around so, that time. I think he's using that's what's on the front of the Garage Days re, re, revisited. Yeah, so there's a there's a photo of him sat in front of the Gibson Flying V, the Jackson uh, Randy Rhodes, and there's what looked like two Fernandez Strats um, behind him. One of which looks uh, to have a pointy headstock as well. Um, so I'm assuming that at some point all four of those guitars will have been recorded for Master yep. Puppets, um, either by Hammett or Hetfield. So yeah, so that wraps up the uh, the guitars that um, that we used. Shall we move on to amps? We can do. On to guitar amps. 
Um, so quite unusually, um, I think both Hammett and Hetfield used the same guitar amps to record Master Puppets, um, and they used them in quite an unconventional way, which I shall uh, Go on, detail <laughs> for you right now. Um, for Ride the Lightning, uh, they'd used Marshall JCM 800 22 or 3s, uh, which is about as metal as Marshall amps get, uh, with Kerry King of Slayer fame, having his own JCM 800 signature model. Uh, it's a no-nonsense, single-channel, massive-volume, 100-watt valve amp with no reverb or effects loop. So there you go. So that's probably why it appealed to mm, No uh, reverb. It's Metallica. a theme, isn't it? Yeah, no reverb. For the time, the JCM 800 was a high-gain monster of an amp uh, and widely used uh, by many rock and metal guitarists such as the aforementioned Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman, both of Slayer, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth, uh, Scott Ian of Anthrax, um, those guitarists all being members of Thrash Metal's Big Four, uh, Michael Schenker, Slash and Zach Wilde, who also has a signature model. But if you think that the JCM 800 couldn't get any more metal... Uh, you would be badly, sadly wrong. Why is that? Well, I'll tell you. Um, for the Master of Puppets sessions, Hetfield and Hammett had acquired a couple of Mates Boogie Mark II C Plus amps, um, which are now so highly revered and sought after that, for some reason, um, and I think that reason is possibly uh, the sonic qualities of its overdriven sound, uh, and its relative rarity, because not many were, were made before Boogie moved on to the Mark III. Mm. Um, these amps are stupidly expensive are they? now. Yeah, really what, ridiculous. Like what kind of stupid? Um, £4,000 plus. Right, okay. Um, so a super clean model, you know, people are asking five grand plus. Um, you can pick up an early 80s JCM 800 for about half the mm. price of a Mark IIc. Uh, but that said there were a hell of a lot more JCM 800s made. Um, so the interesting part about how the guitars were recorded, they were recorded in quite an unconventional way. Um, and I can't quite get my head around how it worked from the description given. But this, this is essentially how, how they recorded the guitars for Master Puppets. So they, they took the preamp stage of the Mark II C Plus and disconnected it from the amp's power amp stage and then slaved it into the JCM 800s, essentially using the JCM 800s power amp stage instead to drive the Marshall 412 cabinets. Um, the Boogie's preamp section in Graphic EQ was then used to hone and fine-tune the guitar sound that you hear on the finished album. So, like I said, I don't know what the advantages of this setup are, as the Mark II C Plus had a perfectly serviceable 60-watt mm. um, or 100-watt power amp stage of its own. There, there are only two things that I can think of that are fairly obvious factors that would that would impact upon the sound. That the Mark II C Plus was slaved through the JCM 800's preamp stage also, so that both preamps were used to create the Master Puppet sound. So it's going through the Mark II C Plus uh, preamp into the front of the JCM 800, using that preamp section of that amp yeah. before going into the power amp section so basically, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an additional preamp stage in right. front of the okay. JCM 800, which makes the most sense to me um, that that's how they would do it. Because the other way of doing of, of doing it would be that the Mark II C Plus was slaved directly into the power amp stage of the JCM 800. Maybe because Rasmussen preferred the sound of the power amp valves uh, that Marshall used. Um, so Boogie would have used 6L6 power tubes, uh, which were used by Fender in amps such as the Fender Twin. Um, so it gives him, gives the amp a high headroom, super clean, glassy guitar tone. Marshall used EL34 power tubes, uh, which for some offer a stronger mid-range and more aggressive sound. Except for its US exports, Marshall used 6550 power tubes, which have more in common with the 6L6 sonically. I kind of think that the way that they did it was probably the first way because right. to disconnect an amp's preamp section from the power amp section would be pointless, really. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that would have allowed them to access just the power amp section of the JCM 800 is if it had an effects loop and they went into the effects loop return. Right. Um, maybe that bypassed the preamp section and went straight to the power amp section. 
which would allow them to use the preamp from the Mark II C Plus in place of the preamp of the JCM 800 instead of in addition to... I think I understand. I'll have to trust you, you on this because I'm not... Um, it's not my hot topic. Um, um, preamps, power Either amps, way it worked. Slogan. Yes. Whatever it it sounds did, good. Yeah. Sounds all right. Whatever they did worked. for guitars I can't find anything really on what if any effects Hetfield would have used um, but it seems that Hammett uh, could have used an Ibanez TS9 Tube Screamer and a Dunlop Crybaby Wah definitely one of them a wah, defin- or a yeah, wah he's definitely using the wah <coughs> um, he may have used the TS9 to add a bit of sizzle yep to, to his solos. Um, but, yeah, really, like, very, very minimal effects on this album. Should we talk about Cliff, his gear? Let's talk about Cliff Burton and his uh, his equipment. So there's less on Cliff Burton to talk about, as there tends to be with kind of bass, because it's not written as extensively about... But for the most part, it seems like he played the one which, if you look at any footage or any photographs of Cliff Burton on this Master of Puppets tour or leading up to the tour, uh, the recording of the album, he's using an Aria SB black and gold one, which it says played exclusively on Master of Puppets. But in that book and in a different book that I've read, um, somebody said that he also played his Rickenbacker on it as well. So the Rickenbacker is a heavily modified one, which he was using in the early days of Metallica. I think he changed the pickups. I think he added a guitar pickup near the bridge or something like that. So it was, yeah, it wasn't like um, the stock one. Aria, Japanese, aren't they? Japanese company. Yeah, and yeah. I think it kind of coincides with the 80s when a lot of super high quality instruments came out of Japan. And you'll notice that a lot of guitarists switched to playing um, guitars that came out of Japan because they just seemed to be super, like just really, really solid um, they did very, very good replicas of, you know, things like Les Pauls and Strats and things like that. Although Lawsuit the Aria one. Yeah. Yeah. But the Aria kind of had its own design, um, which has not dated very well. You don't see many people playing them now. They no. were very, very, very kind of of their time. The interesting thing about Aria guitars is that from what I remember, in, you know, back in the back in the 80s, they were very much a budget they were, slash yeah. mid-priced guitar and not very well regarded. I know, it's weird, isn't it? Because um, the, these models, I think when they came out, were very expensive. And the earlier ones, that, that particular shape of them were, I think maybe as, as the 80s progressed, they started maybe kind of making lower price ones. I remember I had an Aria Pro fretless ones, which were like cost peanuts. Um, yeah, but you're right. They didn't. They weren't like you go to for like high quality um, guitars. Can I just ask? Um, was the Aria fretless bass when you were going through your sting phase? Uh, no, it was a, a Primus phase. All oh, right, okay. But Sting played an Ibanez, didn't he? Another yeah. I, uh, Ibanez. Was it Roadster? Might have been a roadster or musician bass. So like another example, somebody played switching to Japanese instruments. Um, I think Fender actually produced a lot of their guitars in Japan in the 80s. Like there was a period of time where they only made them in Japan. Right. If you can't beat them, just sort of join them things. Yeah. Yeah. So he used a Rickenbacker in early Metallica years, but the producer, Fleming Rasmussen, said he would change bass on some of the songs. And the only two basses I've seen him playing around that time are the Aria one and the Rickenbacker. It's difficult to know the difference because of the sound that he gets with them. It's very yeah. kind of low, muddy, kind of overdriven sound. Um, and even like me, as somebody who plays bass, it's difficult to kind of pinpoint exactly which one's being played on which songs, yeah. uh, even when you've got the isolated tracks. I, w- I would hazard a guess that 
Um, talking, we were talking about the bass solo on Araya now. I would hazard a guess that that was maybe played on the aria because playing something like that on the Rickenbacker, I imagine, would be harder. I think you need the 20... I think the aria had 24 frets as well. Yeah. Rickenbacker's like 20 or 21, and I think there is one part of that second solo in the... Sorry, the solo in Orion that Cliff Burton plays, which is way up there, which it's not possible to play on. Like, yeah. a, you know, like a jazz bass or something like that that's got less frets. The middle of Orion is obviously clear, uh, kind of a cleaner sound. That's probably the area because Rickenbackers don't sound like that when they're played very <laughs> clean. Um, yeah, so like we've mentioned before, you can listen to lots of isolated tracks and things like that. And they, they're pretty overdriven, his bass sound. There is an Aria Pro Cliff Burton tribute model. Um, they launched it about 10 years ago. Yeah, so it's a pretty accurate replica of it. You know, it's just got single pickup in it and and so on. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of signature basses um, at all. Apart from there's an Epiphone Jack Casty one that I like, which is like yeah. the big, you know, like the big body bass, but um, I'm not a big fan of kind of uh, signature ones. Ampwise for Cliff Burton, I think in the early days he used all kinds of different stuff. I think when we were talking about Iron Maiden, where you, they kind of went through kind of <laughs> tons of different amps in the early stage. In, in On one yeah. stage. Yeah. 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 And like as a bass player, I think that bass amps, as long as it's loud and it sounds pretty clean and, you, and you've got the ability within it to make it overdriven, then most bass amps are on a level once you get to a certain yeah. point. You've got to be a, a real connoisseur of tone to kind of discern between the differences between some bass amps once you get above a certain level, especially yeah. if you want this sound that Cliff Burton's got. You just want it to be loud yeah, and not break down. It, it, it's <laughs> interesting because um, when I was looking at um, gear that, that it used, especially referring to, to bass amps, when we were talking about Steve Harris, um in the first episode, he was using uh, Sun Coliseum and a PV Mark III hmm. Series 400. And, and I've got down here that Burton, in the early days, was using a Sun Beta bass amp and a PV Mark IV Series 400. So, you know, th- these were obviously, at the time, yeah. popular brands for, for bass guitarists, especially... I think they're quite low know. cost as well. Yeah. Like a PV yeah. was like... I mean, if you've ever had a PV amp, they're, they weigh about as much as a car, but they're super reliable. Yeah. Um, and they're quite cheap. Yeah. Um, and you, they're just really good for value for money, aren't they? Yeah. And I think the Sun stuff is... As soon as bands start getting more expensive gear, you just think, have they been given it? You know, like, especially because he says he's... We found that he used, and if you look at live footage, he's playing Mesabuki yeah. uh, heads and the cabinets as well. Yeah. And, you know, James Hetfield and Kirk Hammett are using Boogie as well. So you, I think they got some kind of endorsement chucked at them. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, you know, a band that's on the up and up. Yeah. You know, it's only what Marshall did, isn't it, in the, yeah. uh, in the 60s. They just put Marshall snacks behind every mm. major band out there and suddenly Marshall was a global... How many of those amps do you think were actually wired up the cabs? You know, like when you see <laughs> like 15 cabs either side of the drum kit? Yeah. I wonder how many were actually doing out. Well, there's that famous photo, isn't there, of, of um, there's like a facade of, of, of a wall of martial amps and it literally is just a facade. Empty. Yeah. And behind that facade is like a Marshall combo, like a yeah. 212 combo, you know. If you look at Metallica's stage show now, though, they don't really have amp. They've got like no. one, it's bizarre, they've got like just one amp. Have you seen yeah. it? Yeah. Like maybe one amp either side of, it's, it's very bizarre, well, really sparse, the, and it's all modelers, isn't it? And yeah, well, they use, I was going to say, I think they're using the, the same kind of system that um, when we saw Wolf Spain. Oh, I yeah. think they're using the same kind of system as Jace yeah. Edwards uses right. uh, in Wolfsbane. So I'd, I'd be surprised uh, if there was any actual amps. Yeah. You just press a button and it switches amp yeah. model and tone. and Yeah, um, does it all for you. Which, which to me is like, there's a bit of a, a, bit of a side um, sidestep. Um, I saw a, gig, a, a rig rundown for Jimmy Eat World and they were using um, just in-ear monitors and mm. amp, uh, 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 an amp profiling modelling unit. How so complex were, is their sound? So there was no 
there was no amplifier or speaker cab. Everything right. was in in-ear monitors. Right. And to me, it's just something not, a bit odd, isn't there? It's just not rock and roll. Yeah. You know, but it's the noise, it's the excitement, it's yeah. the you know, like being stood in front of a of a amp that's mm. feels like it's going Finding to Finding that sweet spot on the stage where you yeah. can kind of feel the frequencies better and it sounds a lot better. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we've got Boogie and then I think he I've seen some photos of him using some SVT, which is you kind of the for bass players Ampeg is like the Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of equivalent really. It's like your workhorse. Um you know, heavy, heavy, heavy amps, which if you look on stage in, well, when most big plans are playing now, they've either got Ampegs or some of them got Ashdowns and things like that. So they tend to be the two which people use. So it's no surprise that he had one of them. One thing that Cliff Burton is known for is his effects. So whereas you couldn't find very much for James Etfield and Kirk Hammett, um, a lot of his, the things that he's known for are for his use of distortion, the wah pedal, um, to get, well, he used to do lots of bass yeah. solos, didn't he? Um, it's a very specific kind of wah pedal, isn't it? Yeah, and I think used. they recreated his as well, as like a Cliff Burton tribute Morley wah pedal as well. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> so it was the um, it was the what was it called? The Power Wah Fuzz, something like PWF that. PWF yeah. for short. Yeah, there's, he's got his own um, sound which came from that Morley wah. Yeah, um, I think also he got a compressor pedal. Yeah. Electro Harmonics Big Muff, which Matt Sharp used to use as well. Uh, they probably used lots of different things. Yeah. You know, because they were touring them, things might break, you can't find direct replacements for them. But I think that Morley seems to be the constant. And there's lots of other things that you see written about him using, but the Morley one seems to be the constant as well. And the intro to Damage Incorporated, I think he's got some kind of volume pedal where he's kind of swelling in and out which is how you get that sound that sort of seems to come in and go out again with no specific start point on it yeah well um i think that was a um a rack mounted ibanez harmonics slash delay effect unit um an exact model number i don't have but yeah um so he used he used that in conjunction with his molly power wire um i think uh with with burton um detailing its use in a thrash metal interview, I'm assuming Thrash Metal is the name of the magazine, uh, around the recording of Master Puppets. So he said, uh, on this album, uh, there's an intro into a song called Damage Inc., uh, done all on bass, which is odd because it doesn't sound like a bass particularly, does it? No, it doesn't. So, so maybe he's sort of using some sort of pitch-shifting thing um, on, on there. Um, it's about 8 or 12 bass tracks, a whole lot of harmonies and volume swells and effects and stuff. I would hesitate to call it a bass solo. It's just more of an intro, but it's all bass. Mm. I think the key to Cliff Burton's bass sound is how he plays it, how he attacks the strings, yeah. his, the techniques that he uses. That's the key to his sound, really. Uh, and did he use opinion. fingers or, or fingers. a pick? Just finger right, style, okay. yeah. I can remember um, on a uh, some document Metallica film uh, when Robert Trujillo joins the band and oh yeah they when comment, he's this, yeah. this is the first time we've heard these songs played like this since yeah, since cliff, cliff. yeah because jason Newstead played with a pick yeah which is a very different sound robert trujillo is like a beast though yeah. i mean like he's just a beast of a bass player yeah um criminally underutilized in metallica i think yeah but i mean they gave him a million pound golden handshake didn't they so they did, yeah you know I'd, I'd be criminally underused for a for that yeah. amount of money as well it wouldn't bother me in the slightest. Yeah, Phil. Um, I've shared a lift with Robert Trujillo. Have you really? I have, yeah. When, the, when did that happen? At the London Bass Guitar Show about seven or eight years ago. It was on yeah. It was on the first floor of some exhibition centre. And he was doing one of those conference kind of, where he sits and he talks about stuff. Um, yeah, and he was in the lift next to me. I looked down and there was just, I, I just is saw this. Small, he's only small, is he? Yeah. I looked down and I was like, Hello. <laughs> Hello, little fella. <laughs> what are you doing down there? <laughs> there was a guitar case and it just said Metallica, uh, Robert Trujillo on it. I thought, oh, right. And then I looked up and there he was.
And Lars Ulrich yeah. played some drums. He did. He ate some stuff. That's it. Right. Right, moving on. <laughs> I've actually, I have actually gone to a bit more of an effort oh. this time. Oh, no. <laughs> we can edit most I'm of it out. Okay, so um, this is from mixdownmag.com.au. Um, all this information that's about to follow. Um, so in 1983, Lars Ulrich received an endorsement deal uh, with Tama Drums, which still stands to this day. So, you know, loyal uh, endorsee. Um, they probably give him 50 bazillion free drum kits a year, so, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, Ulrich subsequently switched to a Tama Imperial Star kit for the tour surrounding Killamall, uh, and this kit had mahogany shells and six toms of various sizes. Mm, which he just hit at random, didn't which he? he? Just hit at random, <laughs> or, or following the guitar yeah. parts. Uh, during the subsequent Ride the Lightning and Master of its touring years of 84 to 86, Ulrich switched to a Tama Superstar kit made of birch. Um, this is not the white kit era, is it? No, it's is not. That? No, that's a different kit entirely. Is it? Um, so we can we can assume that this is the kit. The Tama Superstar kit is the kit that he used to record right. Master of Puppets with. Didn't he use? Um, is it Def Leppard's snare drum? Yes, um, Lars Ulrich borrowed Rick Allen's um, Ludwig Black Beauty snare drum, uh, which is quite a revered yeah. snare drum. If you're a drummer, I don't know much about drums, but they seem to pop up quite well, a lot. Yes. Ludwig's and Black Beauties has been. The ones that you want to get. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the Black Beauty snare drum, if you want. Go on, then. Um, so, this is from Ludwig's website. One of the primary reasons Ludwig is the most famous name on drums is the legendary Black Beauty snare drum. The drum is constructed of a single sheet of brass that is machine-drawn into a seamless beaded shell. However, due to their truly unique and difficult manufacturing process, only a very limited number of Black Beauties are available each year from Ludwig USA. I didn't know that. So there you go. So it's 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 not only is it is it highly revered, it's quite rare as well because right. uh, manufacturing restricts the the amount that can be made. Um, so a true American original, the Black Beauty provides a warm, round, metallic tone um, that is often imitated but never duplicated. So there's a few features here, which for for, for the uh, for just for the drummers out there, just to show that I've made a bit more of an effort this time. <laughs> Not that I understand what any of this means, um, but the features of the Black Beauty snare are 1.2 millimeter seamless brass shell, nickel and nickel plated. So it's a nickel plated seamless bit of brass shell, I think. Right. Um, 2.3 mil steel triple. Flanged hoops. I love that word, flange. Flange. It's a good word. Um, a P eighty eight AC throw off. <coughs> I think <laughs> I'm going to hazard a guess here that that's the thing that turns the snare on and off. All oh, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, a P thirty five P butt plate, mm. which yep. sounds yeah. like something that you'd get from lovehoney.com. Do you know what lovehoney.com is? I don't is? actually know. Oh, I was going to ask about a thought. <laughs> just exposed myself there. So to speak. Um, so to speak, yeah. Um, uh, Ludwig Weather Master Medium Coated Head, Ludwig Weather Master Clear Snare Sidehead. Are you Googling Love Honey? I'm just having a little look on lovehoney.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 10 lugs, which aren't ears. No, oh, I think right. things that hold the... If you're not from Yorkshire, you probably no. won't get that. No, you won't. Um, to sort of go into a bit more, a bit more detail as to as to why uh, this drum is so revered and why Lars Ulrich would have wanted to use it on Master of Puppets, from an article written by Jay Tibbetts for DrummingReview.com. Um, I've played varying sizes of Black Beauty snares on tours, sessions and a wide variety of gigs from small jazz club gigs in Graz, Austria to outdoor all-rock festivals in Austin, Texas. It's been a bit braggadocious there, isn't Who it? said that? W- Jay Tibbetts, whoever right. Jay Tibbetts may be, I'm assuming he's a session drummer, but it's been a bit braggadocious there, I think. I know. I can add my uh, testimony to the legacy that the Ludwig Black Beauty snare drum is one of the best snare drums I've ever played and owned. My favourite aspect of the drum is its versatility. Hmm. I've cranked it up super tight for specific jazz and pop gigs, and I've tuned it down as low as it goes, 
uh, with moon gels tape and tape all over it. That and almost sounds like Ludwig have written that for him. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. I've always been able to achieve whatever tone I am searching for. Yeah. Weird that. So there you go. Um, symbols. Um, Some metal things. Yeah, metal things. Metal things. Um, apparently Ulrich has always favoured Zildjian. At, at the point of recording Master Puppets, I believe he was using two 14-inch custom Dino Beat hi-hats. Uh, one on his right and one on his left side. 17-inch and 18-inch medium crash. 16, 17 and 18 inch rock crashes and a 20 inch Z custom China crash. They're the really... Oh no, that's a splash I'm thinking of. Yeah, the, the, the China China's one is the one that's got the inverted rim. Yes. It makes you. a very distinctive kind of sound. Um, Any mention of the gong? No, no mention of a gong. I couldn't find mention of a gong. Uh, I can tell you that he used Remo clear pinstripe batter heads on his toms and kick drums. Uh, Remo ebony ambassadors as resonant heads and Remo coated CS on the snare. And uh, he uh, sticks-wise, he had his own regal tip 5B Lars Ulrich models sticks made by Calato. So that's that wraps up um, quite nicely um, all the kit that they used to record the album with should we talk about some artwork yes because um, it is a really iconic cover isn't it it is very iconic and it's I think of all the things to do with the album it's the thing which places it in time more than anything else because right. bands don't tend to have album covers like that anymore in what way? What do you mean? The fact that it's not digital and it's obviously... I think, is it a painting? It is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think there's just something about it which just, I think, places it at that moment in time. Yeah, and I think part of that is also the medium upon which it was put out. So, you know, the main medium would have been vinyl, 12-inch mm. vinyl. So yeah. the size of a vinyl album cover mm. is is integral to the impact of the, the artwork. And I mm. think that this um, particular artwork is perfect yeah. for 12-inch mm. vinyl. Oh, it's iconic, cover. there's no doubt. The artwork for Master Puppets was painted by New York School of Visual Arts graduate Don Broutigum. Don Broutigum? Broutigum? Yeah. Broutigum? Don. I'm going to go with Broutigum. I'm, I think Broutigum, yeah. Um, whose other metal album artwork credits include Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, ACDC's The Razor's Edge, and Anthrax's Persistence of Time. Oh, very good. Yeah. So, can see the Anthrax Persistence of Time link. Yeah, yeah. So sometime in mid-85, he was commissioned by uh, Metallica's management to create an image for the cover of the band's third album, Master Puppets. Um Despite the presence of a soldier's helmet on the cover's leftmost cross, uh, an apparent reference to the anti-war song Disposable Heroes, Broutigum uh, didn't hear a single riff before painting the image, which is interesting. Mm. Um, he did have a guide, though, didn't he? I think. Yeah, um... yeah I think Hetfield did a rough sketch, didn't he? Right. Which he provided. Uh, Broutigum says, although it would have been possible to hear it, I don't recall ever getting an advance recording. Um but I have to say that the helmet has some relation to the song because the bands usually have a decent portion of input for ideas when it comes to image selection. In this case, it was certainly not my idea. So it's basically the concept has been handed to him right, okay. by Hetfield. You know, he he uh, has had no input uh, in that in that regard for the concept of it. Um, I, I will add that this is all from an article from revolvermag.com written by Jay Bennett. So, indeed, the Master Puppets cover image was conceptualised and designed by Metallica and their manager, Peter Mensch, and according to Louder, um, the final painting was based on a crude sketch by the band's singer-guitarist, James Hetfield, which was sent to Broutigam as a guide. Metallica drummer Lars Ulrichs has said that the image encapsulates the idea of people, whether they are soldiers, disposable heroes, or drug addicts, uh, in the, uh, the title track, uh, being subconsciously manipulated an overall theme of the record. So that would that would tie in with the hands and yep. the strings and Definitely. You know, the, the, the crosses and all that. Um, 
To underscore that point um, from the referenced Louder article, Brauticum himself admitted in 2002 that his memory of the circumstance in which he was commissioned to do Master Puppets were rather vague. Hetfield wanted to capture the futility and price of addiction as depicted so starkly in the title track and came up with the concept of those gravestones. But there is something decidedly odd here in that Brautigam copied Hetfield's original sketch exactly, taking his rough outline as his master plan, which is why, you may have noticed, the hands at the top corners have no fingernails and look a little childlike. So there, there you go, sort of that sort of childlike, feminine kind of quality to mm. to the hands um, was was possibly due to Hetfield's rough sketch, or maybe because I have seen a picture of it, like with thing, maybe they just said take the fingernails off and then they just left it. We've gone down a rabbit hole here, haven't we? We're yeah. talking about fingernails on an album yeah. cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we could spend another half hour talking <laughs> about it. Um, but it's so, a really it made a good good T-shirt as well, didn't it? It's a very good. Yes. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's just a really great design. Yeah. Um, and the original was um, seventeen by seventeen inches hmm. uh, on il- illustration board, so it's kind of you know only five inch larger than the the hmm. uh, eventual um, cover that it would uh, cover size that it would end up on. Um, I think the, gra- the, head, the gravestones are too close together to actually have people buried under there. I think you've been a bit pernickety, pal. They'd have to have had the legs blown off or be midgets. <laughs> totally flat. <Sorry. laughs> like, <laughs> like, maybe that's where the inspiration for one came about. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. It all links together. Yeah. So um, it turns out that um, Master Puppets is one of, uh, was one of Brautigam's favourite artworks. He said here, um, it leaves a warm feeling in my heart to see the artwork that I did over 20 years ago, plastered on T-shirts and posters all over the world. I hope it has something to do with the painting and not just the popularity of the band, which I'm sure it does, because, you know, if if Metallica had decided to use a picture of a chicken sat on a beach ball, smoking a cigarette, that probably wouldn't have... Ended up on t-shirts, would it? <laughs> well, it sounds no, no. I guess not. No, I mean, you're right. It sounds like uh, thematically, it doesn't fit. It doesn't. Um, and and it's, it's a really crap concept for a for an album cover. So I might edit that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so surprisingly, uh, Brautigam ended up giving away the seventeen by seventeen inch painting to John and Marsha Zazula. Which is a great name. It is, isn't it? Zazula. Uh, who signed Metallica to their very first label deal with Megaforce Records, the label on which Killamore was released. Um, in 2002, they sold the artwork on eBay for $7,000. Which is all right, isn't it? Not to be sniffed at. Um, six years later, in November of 2008, it was auctioned at Christie's in New York and fetched $28,000. Mm. Um Sadly, Brautigam had passed away 10 months before it was sold. Um, So there you go. And there we have it. Now, we can't talk about Master of Puppets without talking about Cliff Burton. Yeah. So I, th- I think um, although you can't um, hear him tremendously well in the mix, I think his influence on the album mm. is cannot be um, overstated. No, I mean, I think the influence on the band, I mean, is we've mentioned before when we were looking at all of the different tracks and analysing those that, a lot of the complexity and the sophistication that came into the songs regarding harmonies and things like that came from Cliff Burton, really, and his influence. You know, like we've been in bands with people, and you pick up things from people you're in bands with, don't you? Whether it's bands that they like or the way that they play and things that they bring into it, and he definitely brought in something which they'd not had before. What um, what, what did you pick up from me? <sighs> Don't think too long. (laughs) 
I think because no, I mean, <laughs> I'm joking. You don't have to answer the question. I am actually so. trying to think of something actually. Uh, how to sulk if people are not yeah. if, if people are uh, asking about Obviously. rehearsals. Obviously. How to sit on your guitar case and say, "I'm going home." Then, if you're not taking it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these are all key they are really elements good. to yeah. being a successful, uh, well-integrated mm. and respected member of a band. Exactly. So where were we? I can't remember now. We were talking Cliff about Burton. Cliff Burton. Yeah. Complete opposite to me when I'm on stage, Cliff Burton. Very animated, you know, like a definite sort of, a lot of bass players just standing background, aren't they? Um, and they're not kind of like a focal point, but he definitely was. And I think that's what drew the band, or James and Lars, to him, didn't they? Because he wasn't their original bass player. Uh, I think he was much more musically um, kind of educated than them. Had a much more of a wider taste in music, like classic sort of rock, like Eagles and Leonard Skinner and Ted Nugent. But then when you read about the other stuff he was listening to, he liked jazz fusion as well and blues and classical music and was into bass players like Jaco Pastorius, Jeff Berlin and Stanley Clark, who were very much kind of playing the bass as a lead instrument. And you can, um, you know, you can hear that influence in it yep. as well. And he was a big fan of Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not very clued up on classical music, I'll be honest. But Bach comes up a lot when you hear people, t- um, bass players, talk about some of their influences. I don't know whether they're just saying it to make them sound a bit more, you know, sophisticated. I, I imagine that, um, like, when, when I was... At college studying music, I had to play some Bach inventions right. for sight reading right, exercises okay. and stuff like that. So maybe that's yeah, you know where that 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 comes from. Maybe that's something that that mm. uh, you know if they studied music, maybe that's something that they had to do as well. I think he did have a bit more classically trained as well. I think some of the like the middle bit from Orion is kind of it's it's related to sort of chord theory and chord tones, and it's. It's unlike anything um, else, really, that um, is any of the Metallica songs. Interestingly, he played with Jim Martin, Billy Gould, and Mike Borden from Faith No More Ooh. in the late 70s. Wow. Yeah, so I think they all grew up in the same area. So by all accounts, he was a charismatic character, was Cliff Burton, and they all looked up to him. I think not because he was tall. I think yeah. he was just, they did kind of look up to him because he just of the way he had a bit of... Not like uh, Robert Trujillo. No. Who was little? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem quite uh, uh, almost an enigmatic yeah. character. And in the few interviews, like video rec- interviews of him, you know, he does have a certain something about him, which is, yeah. um, you know, you can just tell when when people are talking, can't you? He's like the opposite of Lars Ulrich. Yeah. He 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 also has the confidence to do double denim. Yeah, bell bottom denim as well. Yeah, which you know is is not an easy look to carry off. Definitely not. And I always remember um, that famous photo of him with one of the coolest t-shirts I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. It's like a B movie t-shirt, yeah. and it says "It's dead," whatever it was. Yeah, I like that as well. I forgot about that actually. Um, yeah, so he's. His bass playing was really inventive in some of the Metallica songs, but it's mixed so low. Like, yeah. you know, like we talked about, you didn't even know that that solo in Orion was bass, and I didn't for years. In Call of Cthulhu, I think that's how you pronounce it, he's doing like loads of wah, distorted bass in the background, and it's so quiet in the mix, you, you need to be prompted that it's actually there. You know, like it's only because yeah. I read about it that it was actually there that I picked up on it being there. I mean, it's not like non-existent, like in uh, Unjustice for All. I think there's something psychological about the mixing Jason Newstead so low in Unjustice yeah. for All. Definitely. I think it, it, yeah, maybe they, they didn't realise it, but I think there's something, but that's an, for another conversation. Um, so yeah, about six months or so after, yes, yeah, six months or so after Master of Puppets was released, the band were touring it in Europe with Anthrax. Um, they'd been on tour with Ozzy Osbourne. Can you imagine going on tour with Ozzy Osbourne in the mid eighties? I, I, I can imagine that um, it would have been equally frightening and hilarious. I imagine so as well. <laughs> but they, yeah, they were kind of um, at that time. They were building their reputation. Um, they weren't the Metallica, obviously, that we know now. But they were actually at that point where they were tipping over into becoming um, a lot bigger as a band. Last gig was in Stockholm. And in that Matt Taylor book, there's loads of pictures of it, of that actual last gig. 
on the deluxe edition of Master of Puppets, there's the full concert. Yeah. Um, I find them very spooky to listen to. I find yeah. it very strange looking at pictures of that last concert as well, especially because one of the pictures in the book is Cliff Burton like handing his bass or throwing his bass to his like a bass tech or the guitar tech or something like that. They did a photo shoot after the gig or maybe before it um, at the venue. I just think it's bizarre, you know, like there's so much documentation of that actual last gig, uh, whereas there probably isn't for a lot of them. So it was in Sweden, and then Cliff and Kirk drew cards to choose their bunks. Can you imagine Ooh, that? Crikey. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? No. So I don't know if I don't no. know which one of them won or which one of them lost. I think it was that Cliff Burton won, so he chose one of the comfier beds or something like that. Right. I don't know if history has exaggerated the fact that he he pulled out the ace of spades. I, I feel like somebody's <laughs> kind of just inserted that in there to give it a bit more, yeah. uh, you know. A lot of these, as as we well know, a lot of these stories yeah. um, do get embellished yeah. and exaggerated and added to along the way. Um, I, I, I've not heard that story, so I don't mm. know if it's true. I quite true. like to think that it is true. Well, it would be nice, in a it? way... It's. I think it should be true. Yeah. But not in any kind of um, sense of foreboding, but just because the Ace of Spades is probably the most rock and roll playing mm. card. It is, isn't it? In existence. So, yeah. You know. So I'm not going to go into too much detail about what actually happened in the accident, but there was a, um, on the way to the next gig, uh, the coach. There was a coach crash. Um, was there some um, debate over whether or not the driver was responsible? Yeah, I mean, he's never, ever faced any kind of repercussions to it legally. I'm sure he's lived with the fact that he crashed a bus that somebody died on for, you know, for yeah. years and years. Um, I think there was talk of it like they hit black ice, but the band have dispute with this. I think he basically just fell asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, if you've ever driven late at night... Uh, you know, it's quite possible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think it's quite a, a secluded place, um, not much in the way of traffic to keep you alert. So it's perfectly believable, but we, we nobody knows really, I suppose. No. So, yeah, the final gig is photographed well, and there's also images of just after as well, like a picture of them outside the hotel the next morning, just the three of them, which is a very strange image to look at because can you imagine being like that age and last night you did a gig and then the next morning one of you's dead? Yeah. And you've been in a coach crash. It's very strange. Uh, I think if the sequence of the songs on the deluxe version is correct, the last song that he played was Fight Fire with Fire. Right. Uh, that was the last one that he did. Uh, and then that was it. So as we know, the band continued. Yeah. Got Jason Newstead. And then within a couple of months, they were touring again. To, like, that- to go to Japan to fill, fulfill some commitments. Um, that not being given the space to grieve the loss of your best mate must have been really, really hard. And they were, and I don't think they were particularly nice to Jason Newstead, you know, by all I, accounts. <laughs> well, you know what, I, I, you know, like you say about the about the mix of Vanjus's for all psychologically, they must have been thinking, you know, yeah, we, you're not Cliff. I've only really you know, thought about that recently. You know, when I've been reading about it a lot, and then yeah. it, I just thought maybe they just mixed him out of it just to kind of still in denial, you know, like we don't yeah. want somebody else to be kind of uh, mixed high in this because it seems not disrespectful. Yeah. But you know what I mean, and, don't you? You know, when, you, when you're in that gig situation and you've got to introduce the band and you've got to big up your new bass player, I know. and really you just want to be bigging up your old bass player, you know, know. like it, it must have been really like a massive head fuck for. For everyone, you know. I think that the lot of the one of the reasons why they went out on tour again so soon is because they did have a lot of commitments, you know, because they were yeah. getting quite big, so they were probably booked up for another, you know, however many months after he died. So they went to Japan first, I think. I think they did a couple of club gigs in America, then they went to Japan. Um, mm. It must have been very, very odd. And just it, to think of being Jason Newstead in that situation as well. At first, you'd be like, "Brilliant, I'm in Metallica," and then you're actually doing it, and then you'd be like. Oh god, this is very well, bizarre. There's a difference. I think there's a difference between being in a band and playing with a band. Yeah, and I think for a lot of years he was just playing in a band. Mm. You know, like rather than being fully a hundred percent accepted, I think whoever got that gig after Cliff Burton passed away would have had a really hard time integrating, and and you know, because because you know you you only have to read about. Um, 
you know, in the, in the Back to the front, front book, they were all four of them thick as thieves, weren't they? Mm. You know, they'd gone from... Um, well, it's that history, isn't there? You know, like you've gone yeah. from being like in, in like a, a garage and writing these songs and going from playing small clubs to virtually no, nobody to supporting Ozzy Osbourne and you've got all these collective shared experiences and then somebody just hops on board. Yeah. And they were only young men, weren't they? Yeah. They weren't particularly kind of emotionally mature, probably, were they? And they'd had a bit yeah. of a strange life you know it's not a it's not a real life is it i suppose being in a band when you're in your late teens and all the adulation and you know it's not like getting up at half five and clocking on yeah you know yeah. it's one of those so so yeah so that is the um what happened with cliff burton there's a memorial by the road i think in um sweden where where the coach actually crashed a bit macabre that in it i'm not sure if i fancy visiting that yeah yeah I mean, I kind of, I kind of think that um, memorialising the location of, of somebody's passing, um, especially in such tragic circumstances, mm. it's not necessarily. I don't think personally for me, I don't think it's how I would want to be memorialised. No, no. Um, you know, it's it's like the Bill Hicks talking about the crucifix. Oh yeah, and uh, JFK back into the left. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that for me. So people have said, have remarked that if Cliff Burton had lived, then would Metallica have taken the same route musically? Uh, It'd be nice to think that he could have prevented the Black Album from happening. Yes. But I do think that they would have still changed direction as well, given all of the influences that he brought to it. Yeah. Uh, there was. I don't know if you read, read this, but there was talk of them booting Lars Ulrich out of the band. After the puppets I've, tour, I've read that as well. Um, and I don't know how Cliff Burton would have felt about that, given that Lars Ulrich was a drummer with a, a, a propensity to follow the guitars <laughs> yeah. rather than the bass. Maybe know? that's something that's become exaggerated over the years. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think without a doubt that um, I mean, Unjustice for All would probably have come out more or less how it came mm. out. Um, more bass on it yeah but probably still the same album because that's the direction that music in general was heading in and they were obviously yeah. heading in would they have taken that turn into working with Bob Rock um, I'm not sure I don't know I, I, I think at some point I think because of the way these things go um, record company pressure you know they were under pressure to continue touring in the aftermath of Cliff Burton's death and that mm. probably came from the record company to sort of keep this machine mm. on the road and fulfil... Obviously, they've got a legal ob obligation to fulfil certain commitments. Um, but like you say, they were young men. So even if they'd have said, I don't want to do it, I can well imagine that the record company would have stepped in and said, you've got to do this mm. and do this. Put, give them the hard word. Get somebody um, to stand in just for these gigs and then yeah. decide what you're going to do. But at some point after Unjustice for All, the record company would have seen them as a growing mm. commercial concern and would have encouraged them to go in that more commercial direction. I'm sure that would have happened. Whether or not it would have taken the shape of what we know now as the Black Album mm. is another matter entirely, I think. Exactly. So that is Master of Puppets. <laughs> So, Master of Puppets, uh, a thrash metal um, genre-defining album. And a masterpiece. Uh, and a masterpiece. Next time... Next we're gonna, time? We're going to be looking at a very, very different masterpiece. We are, yeah. Yeah, we're going to be... Much more niche, um, something which um, probably only a, a, is probably only a European um, album of note, isn't it? I can't see it being... Although there might be some diehard fans... Uh, further afield, but to me, they've always seemed like um, a band who were more European in their yeah. fan base. And this particular album, given the title of the second track, I can't <laughs> see it being massively popular in the States. Um, so next time we will be looking at uh, Manic Street Preachers, The Holy Bible. Look forward to getting stuck into that. Yep. See you next time. Goodbye. Just a couple of blokes. Pouring over nine and notes Brother Rock Geeks <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.